So I, I can't even go beyond saying I feel like a fish out of water. When I thought about this this weekend, doing this lecture, I was terrified. And I think since Saturday, when the realisation of what I was going to have to do, and when I realised what plenary meant, because I wasn't entirely sure what that meant, and I thought I was going to sit in a little room with a very small group of veterinary nurses and talk to them. Nothing like this was what I was expecting. And I also spent Sunday writing about imposter syndrome, um, and I think that completely applies to me at this point in time. So I am truly terrified because I will, you know, I make no claims to be an expert at all in evidence-based veterinary medicine. I'm very much a clinical, work, a clinical nurse, and I've spent 20 years working predominantly in a general practice setting. But I think, personally, those general practice RVNs are the ones that we should start looking at because they probably make up 90, 95% of all the nurses that we have across the UK. And they actually would be in an amazing position to look at creating lots of evidence for us, creating lots of data that we could go on and use and apply to our role as veterinary nurses. So a lot of that is really what I'm going to talk about today and about how we can maybe go away and look at giving them some examples and look at how we can give them some you know, education and things to go away and things that we can really start to think about. So... I realised things have started to change. When I qualified as a veterinary nurse, I did the little green book route, and we didn't really look at any academic literature. So for me, when I started to do further qualifications, it was, you know, a whole big challenge in itself. I realised as we started, to, well, now we started to get graduate veterinary nurses, they are beginning to look more at evidence-based veterinary medicine, but I feel, still think for the majority, it's an entirely new concept and it's something that's really, really daunting for them because it's not something they've ever had to approach at any point in time. I think in addition to that, you know, they generally, most nurses have very little to no, evidence, no experience whatsoever in reading journal articles, in knowing what they're looking at, and knowing what they're really looking for in those particular journal articles. And actually looking at what's relevant to them and looking at what's relevant you know, to the patient population is difficult because then they have no understanding of what that hierarchy of evidence is and that itself is an entirely new concept. So for them to start off by looking at a particular question and putting together some sort of knowledge summary can be really be a daunting task because they just don't know where to start. And I think that's why we look at, need to almost look at scaling it down for them and looking at things that they can do fairly simply in practice in a patient population that they're going to be seeing every day that they can go create protocols and look to make it a difference to those patients that they're going to be looking after. So I think, for me, the useful starting point is looking at creating um, a, a knowledge summary and focusing on one article that they're going to look at and how they can use that article and how they can apply that into their clinical practice. But also, I've talked about veterinary nurses. I think we need to also look at general practices in general, so getting everyone to work together as one team to look at creating that evidence, getting that data together, and creating those knowledge summaries. Because those knowledge summaries and those protocols that they are going to base them on is going to apply to everyone across the whole of that practice. And the problem that we have for a lot of us that particularly do work in general practice is we have questions that we maybe want to look at studying further or questions that we want to ask and get answers to but often there's very, very little evidence out there. So for me, for example, I wanted to do, look at a study using paracetamol um, in dogs because in an emergency setting, we're using more and more paracetamol. It's been commonly um, used. When I speak to nurses and technicians in the States, when I talk about using paracetamol or acetaminophen, 
they think that I've lost my mind because they like the answer will be if you're going to kill your patient you use paracetamol so I looked at look at the evidence that was out there about paracetamol use and how actually it does work really well if that evidence was out there and actually it does cause problems and I think we came up Ava first helped me with this and I think we came up with two papers or something crazy that didn't really give us the answers that we wanted and then you start thinking well where do we go from there but realizing working in a general practice setting getting that evidence is just almost impossible so for undertaking evidence-based veterinary medicine we need to look at those nurses look at creating skills have them develop skills so they can look at an article know what they're looking at looking how that's relevant also we need to consider the skills that they need to learn to understand and create evidence-based veterinary medicine so I when in my previous practice, um, one of the vets used to laugh at me because I was the go-to person for anyone creating PowerPoints, which I can do okay, but for Word documents and Excel spreadsheets. And I am probably the worst person in the world when it comes to Excel, Excel spreadsheets because I just never was taught it as a veterinary nurse. And one of the, the vets used to laugh and used to say, in the land of the blind, um, that you know, I was the, the expert for everyone to go to. But for most nurses... They just don't have those skills, and I think unless you're working within that group of population, they don't necessarily realise that. In addition to that, there's you know other types of software available that, again, it's very difficult for nurses to... Who do they go to to ask for help? Who do they go to for someone to teach them if they are working in a general practice setting? And if they're working with vets that you know have never not really been exposed themselves to evidence-based veterinary medicine... As well, and I'm sure a lot of us, again, particularly as nurses, would agree that we come up with these ideas. So for me, looking at paracetamol, and I thought, well, I can go away and look at using it in these patients and do a blinded study that I'd be part of. But you realise that you just you can start off with really unrealistic ideas about what you can do. So for one, if you're you know, looking at that as a question, would be wonderful if you were doing a full-time master's and had all the time in the world and the time to devote to that. As veterinary nurses in practice, often we don't have that time, although some people would say maybe nurses have better time. But actually we can look at, again, going back to what's relevant, what nurses are doing on a daily basis and using that time that they have and the patients that they're with, again, to gather that data. And as well as which people need to be realistic about doing those projects. You know, things get in the way. You know, people become ill. You know, bereavements happen. All of these things can change what happens in these people's lives. And it's not going to take away from the fact, you know, they, they still want to do those projects but actually they need to be a, re a bit really realistic about what they're likely to achieve within that time scale as well. So for me, it's thinking about, as nurses, what topics are worth looking at and what's really going to influence our practice. There's no point looking at something that is going to make absolutely no difference to your patients. It's really worth looking at fairly basic things that we come across every day that maybe we've done for five years, 10 years, 15 years, just because that's always the way that we've done it and looking at who taught us to do those things. So IPPV is an always example I talk, to talk about. Most nurses would talk how to do intermittent positive pressure ventilation by another nurse in their practice that was taught by another nurse in their practice. And no one can actually talk about the pathophysiology that happens when we ventilate patients, what could go wrong. They just know that they are squeezing that breathing bag on that circuit and giving that patient some breaths. So it's looking at what is going to be useful and what's going to make a difference to those patients. And as we said, what's going to be relevant as a veterinary nurse? We want to think about the types of study that we're going to do. So in reality, you know, everyone wants to go away. They want to do a prospective clinical trial. But for most nurses, again, in a general practice setting, that's going to be fairly unrealistic to be able to do. 
So we need to look at teaching nurses about that and looking at what is really going to be relevant. So challenges really are, if we do have nurses within that clinic and they are really keen on looking at adapt, utilising evidence-based veterinary medicine within to practice protocols, making changes about things that they can do, is getting the whole practice on board. So it's looking at educating everyone across the whole teams. It's about motivating nursing staff, making nursing staff start thinking about what they're doing it and why they're doing it and thinking that they can change the way that they do things. Intravenous fluids during surgery is a good example. When I talk to most nurses, they still go 10 mils per kilo per hour for patients receiving surgical fluid rates. And actually, we know within the last few years, those rates are probably far too high. But that information, even though it's probably three, four years old now, still hasn't trickled down to the majority of the nurses in veterinary practice. And access to available literature is really, really an issue. So I do a reasonable amount of writing. And actually, for me, getting hold of papers was often quite a big issue. And also getting hold of papers that were up to date. And again, I was probably very lucky in that I had more people that I could go to and that made life a little bit easier for me. But that's something that's definitely very difficult for the vast majority of nurses. So the other thing, as we said, is information literacy. So it's getting nurses to be able to look at those papers, to be able to look at that information and know how to pull that information and know what's relevant from it. It's getting nurses to develop critical thinking skills. Yeah, they often haven't been taught about all these types of things. It's not something that they've ever had to approach or think about within their veterinary practice. And it's about really encouraging them to adapt practice policies, to look at what they could do that will make a difference to the way they do things, you know, several times throughout their day on a, a day-in, day-out basis. So it's looking at what really is relevant. And then again, trying to find that, that, that supporting evidence that shows why they should go about changing this within terms of protocols and things like that within their clinics. When I talk to other people about what they thought or what they thought nurses' role could be within evidence-based medicine, someone said to me that may, nurses may have more available time to investigate the evidence themselves. I think that probably didn't come from someone that worked in a general practice, practice setting as a veterinary nurse, because I think most of us will probably say we're actually in a worse situation. But actually what we can do again is look at making things as simple as possible so we can collect that data. And as we said, you know, general practices have all those patients out there and it's really probably not being utilized sufficiently at the moment. Also for nurses, I think it's very good because we're much more likely to see firsthand the outcome of those changes in policy and we can evaluate those outcomes in evidence-based medicine. We spend all our time with our patients. We only need to look at things like pain scoring. And pain scoring, I will always say that I think veterinary nurses are in a really good position because we spend the time with our patients. We know their personalities. We get to know their personalities. And so we can see those changes. So I think we're ideally situated we're doing that and again we'll we'll adapt those changes and we'll see how they work for the better hopefully within our patients and I think as there's more awareness about evidence-based veterinary medicine more, more nurses are starting to want to pursue the incorporation of these ideas um, and into the practice policies even within general practice setting and it can be something as simple as looking at placing Robert Jones dressings it can be something as simple as, as intravenous catheter placement and maintenance as well. So as I said, it really wants to be um, a team effort. Sometimes it's difficult to know what, what questions we're going to start with, what, what protocols we're going to look at starting to change right from the word go. I would say, you know, if you have rounds within your practice, there are often questions raised during those rounds 
but we may think, you know, that's something we need to go away and look at. Often, I think student nurses are good ones because we can kind of stop thinking about what may seem fairly obvious questions, but actually when you get down to it, we don't have any real answers for them about why we do something in a particular way. So thinking about if you do have the students within your practice or coming in to see practice with you, thinking about the type of things that they want you to answer and actually is that something that we can look at addressing? Or even if you have fairly unusual presentations in your practice, something that you've maybe struggled to deal with, you've never dealt with that type of case before, is that something that you want to start creating protocols about? So if we get those patients again, we can look after them a little bit better. And again, we can look at making a team effort in finding that evidence and evaluating that evidence, and we'll talk more about um, that a little bit later on. We can use that team to help make that decision about what subject or what question we think is really going to be useful for that practice. That whole team is going to be important to evaluating that outcome. Again, it's going to very much depend on the intervention that we're looking at. So if it's Robert Jones placement, it's going to be nurses, it's going to be vets that are going to see the outcome of how we place that Robert Jones, what happens when we remove that dressing, what complications we potentially got, or whether it's intravenous catheters, then it's much more likely to be the nurses and the team that are dealing with them. We want to make sure everything gets recorded, and I think that's quite often the time when it becomes most difficult, is because people will forget to write things down, and we lose all that data. But we need to make sure they do that way we do that so we can look to see if that, that what we've done with those patients has actually made a difference and the difference that we expected it to make as well. So we need to have a team that identifies there is a need for change, whether because we're aware that things are beginning to become updated or we know there are new changes in recommendations. It may be that we've had poor outcomes with certain patients. So it may be that we've had, you know, an increased number of surgical site infections in our practice and we actually need to go away and look at what the current recommendations are for skin preparation. You know, dilution rates with chlorhexidine for surgical skin preparation is always a subject that nurses will come back and say, actually, I don't know how, you know, how strong that chlorhexidine solution should be. And, you know, you'll talk to them and they will be making it either a half and half 50-50 mix of of chlorhexidine and water, or most nurses, and I would get them to do this when we had student nurses in prepping patients, would add a little tiny bit of chlorhexidine and then enough water so it looked a vaguely pink colour. But again, it's looking at adapting that, and particularly if you work in bigger practice where they've got lots of locum nurses as well, having those protocols in place so everyone does things the same way is really important, and especially if you have those those an increased number of problems. It may be that certain new evidence has come about, and again, we want to look to change in policies to incorporate that new evidence. So, for example, the new recommendation on surgical fluid rates, if you don't talk to the practice about it, they're not going to know that that new evidence is out there, and they will never change things within their practice. So we need to look at presenting that clinical question to the whole of the team, looking to see if they think that's appropriate and achievable, then look at gathering that evidence. We need to look at having review meetings, and again, that needs to be practice-wide, We need to look at creating those protocols, how we're going to disseminate them. So everyone needs to be up to date. Everyone needs to be aware that these protocols have been put into place and that everyone needs to adhere to them. And then also some auditing of that as well. There's no point putting these policies in place if everyone just carries on doing things in the same way that they've done them. So there needs to be some way of either visually watching what people do or just having some way to make sure those protocols are really being adhered to. So as I said, getting evidence as veterinary nurses is really very difficult and often they do not know where to go to. Their evidence or their literature that they've gone through for years and years and years is probably in those nursing textbooks. But I don't need to talk to you all about what is available. But, you know, it really is worth saying there are things out there. The RCVS library 
even if you can't find it yourself, you know, making sure nurses are aware that they can go back and they can speak to people and they will look and find that evidence as much as they can do. Or even talking to colleagues, there are more vets now that are beginning to do certificates and they will have access to papers. So actually, can they help you pull together that, that evidence so that those nurses can go away and pull that into some sort of protocol um, themselves? Looking at that evidence, as we said, we've got those literature databases. We can teach nurses quite simply using things like Google Scholar and PubMed. But actually, sometimes even finding evidence if you've never used them can be quite difficult. So, you know, we can look to being quite specific in the search words that we're using to really narrow things down as much as we can and make it really useful. So adjusting certain keywords, for example, if you're looking for something in, in dogs, making sure they're searching under canine, making sure they're searching under dogs so we don't exclude anything um, accidentally. Um, using Boolean operators, so and, and, or, or, and not as well, just to, again, making sure we're covering and we're getting as much as that evidence that is around there. Um, and also, these will literature databases are going to be useful in making sure nurses know that to help focus and limit results, because there's no point if you you know, do a search and you get 3,000 papers. Nurses are not going to go through and look at all of those. We want to make sure we're limiting it down to a manageable number, manageable number of papers that are going to be relevant, whilst at the same time not excluding anything that's relevant. And again, obtaining articles sometimes can be quite difficult, but again, it's about talking to nurses about how they can go away and, and get that data. And I know for years, I used to be a member of lots and lots of different associations just so that I had journal access, particularly as I started to write more and more so that I, could had, I had that information available to me because I didn't have university access and I, at that time, didn't know anything about the Royal College Library. So it really did limit me in what I, I had available. Um, I'm not going to pretend to know anything really very much about statistics. And I think that is the most daunting part. So I think as nurses, you know, it's fine to say to them, we don't expect them to ever become. Some nurses may become experts in statistics, but the majority of us are not going to do. And it can be really quite daunting. But I think nurses need to understand that they are really important. We're reliant on looking at statistics to make sure that evidence is valid so that we can draw conclusions about that data. But again... It's knowing what's relevant to those nurses and making sure they, they can understand that they can go away if they get to that point and look at help or speaking to people in practice that may help to be able to interpret that evidence for them. As I mentioned right at the beginning, understanding that hierarchy of evidence is also really important. Nurses often don't understand that there are even different levels of evidence. So most of the time, they're going to maybe look at level four evidence or maybe even level five evidence, but actually saying to them, go away and start looking at good clinical articles that are interesting to you that are maybe randomized clinical trials and using that as a basis and having someone talk through them can be really really important and I'll talk about doing that later on in terms of things like journal clubs that will start help to introduce that um, within practice for nurses as well. Peer review viewing is another thing. So more nurses are beginning to have access to journals like the Veterinary Nurse or Veterinary Nursing Journal as well. And things have changed again over the last 10 years in terms of the quality of articles that we've got submitted to these journals. Things have slowly begun to improve and we are at a point now where we do have peer-reviewed veterinary nursing um, articles being published. But again, there are limitations to them. They're certainly not perfect. There is a big variation across industries and scientific journals. We get a big variation from publication to publication and from reviewer to reviewer, and that can create problems in itself. So I sat on the editorial board of one of the veterinary nursing um, journals, 
And I was asked to review um, an article on artificial insemination in MERS, which probably was not my topic to look at. And for me, there was, it would be completely pointless for me to go and review that topic because I would be able to give no feedback whatsoever. So again, nurses need to have that understanding that although it's very good to have now peer-reviewed journal articles, it doesn't mean they're entirely valid all the time because we do get that big variation. There can be potential for abuse. So if they're not blinded peer reviews, if you know whose journal article you're reviewing, if you don't like that person, if someone didn't like me, which is quite likely to happen, they could completely slate me. And I know from when I've submitted journal articles, I will normally get feedback from two reviewers. And I did one last week. And one of them was like three lines that said everything was fine. And from the other person, I got more or less an A4 side of everything that they found wrong. So even in that same thing published by me, two different reviewers show the difference that you get in terms of people looking at what you've published and what they think about it. There is also, again, as you said, if you're not reviewing a subject that is your, your topic of interest or where your knowledge is, there's going to be a lots of errors in that because we're not going to be knowing what's accurate in terms of what's been written. I think for most nurses and having, I now... Um, I assess nursing assignments, and I know for the majority of nurses, they end up using either online content or they end up using textbooks as the basis for their evidence for writing case reports and things like that. Again, it's making sure nurses understand the limitation of textbooks because they take years to compile, and often by the time these textbooks even come out to be publication, they're good, they can potentially be years out of date. They will then stay in print for many, many years before they get um, another edition being published. So it's very much reflected on research available at that time, and also it's making sure nurses understand that it's very much dependent on that individual person's, you know, their thoughts on, on how they do things, who's writing that, that textbook. So often, that itself is often not evidence-based. So those as a basis for putting together these protocols for evidence-based medicine is not always the, the, the greatest thing to use. So we want to think about um, considerations of current practice. So when we're looking at implementing the evidence-based medicine into our practice, we need to think about being able to evaluate that quality of evidence presented. As I keep saying, it's about thinking whether it's applicable to practice. If it's not applicable to practice, and if it's not going to change what people do with their patients, people are likely to just you know, run out of enthusiasm because they're realizing it's, you know, it's, or it's too big of a task to conquer. Um, they're not going to end up finishing that problem, project. We want to make sure it's applicable to that population those, those, those nurses are seeing in that individual practice. Um, and also we want to think about assessment of bias as well. So again, people may want to do things in a certain way or they may have vets that are wanting to get them to do things in a certain way. So again, we need to make sure that's discouraged across the whole team and that's why having everyone on board is so important in doing these things. So it really is about, you know, as we said at the beginning, get everyone on board, making people realise that things need to change because of the evidence that's out there, because of things going wrong, because we've had poor outcome in cases, or because, as we said, new evidence is available. Looking at who's going to be the best person to use in that practice. And again, it may be that it's the head nurse, or it may be that there's one nurse within that practice that's really keen on incorporating, using, developing new protocols and incorporating evidence-based medicine within them and letting that nurse be encouraged to move forward and create those changes in practice. As I said, review meetings are really important, you know, presenting that clinical question. So all of those things that we need to review on a, on a regular basis and just remind people about as well. 
So clinical auditing, again, is something that often is a completely new subject to veterinary nurses. You know, depending on the type of practice they do, particularly in very small practice, clinical auditing may be something that they've never come across within their life. So it's about making them understand what exactly it is and what we can do about it within our practices. So it's a looking at what, what documented evidence they have. From that, we're going to incorporate as well our clinical governance, and we've also got significant event reporting, and that, is, again, is going to feed back into creating those protocols and amend, amending those protocols within a practice. So for me, it's about talking to nurses about how useful clinical auditing is make it, and making them understand that it's a review of all evidence that we've got within our practice, looking at what we do, how what we're doing works, whether it does work, how we're going to continue to keep that working, and if it doesn't work, what we're going to do about it and how we're going to go about making those changes. And that's why getting everyone on board is so important. It's about them looking at adaptive procedures. So many practices don't have policies. Everyone's going to be doing things in very, very different ways. So looking at creating these policies, creating those procedures that are, so that everyone does things in a very uniform way. Um, and it, as we said, it's going to be part of that clinical governance and it needs to be part of that whole system culture and change in a practice. So one of the things that we can easily get them to look at are things like... IV catheter placement. So it's something that nurses are going to do on a daily basis. Again, most practices now are going to be using these nurses. Nurses are going to be placing these catheters. They're going to be maintaining those catheters, going to taking them out, changing them. And it's really something that we can, you know, very easily collect data on to look what works, to maybe look what doesn't work. Because we've all, as nurses, seen problems. We've all seen those cats with those big fat feet. And if you only need to go on social media, if you need to go on Facebook, and if you're a member of any of the veterinary nurse groups on there, these are questions that come up time and time again because nurses don't have that evidence. So it's about looking at what we do within our practice and looking at how we can make those changes. So again, I pick IV catheter placement because it's something that we're all going to do on a regular basis. So we can talk to nurses about just creating very simple um, spreadsheets, that look at various different factors. So we look initially at who placed those catheters, and then within that we could look at how they prepped their hands before catheter placement. We can look at how they clipped those patients up. Did they clip a tiny little site for that catheter placement? They Did they do a 360-degree clip? What taping technique did they use? You may have a very specific taping technique within your practice or everyone may do things in different ways, so we want to log that. How did they dress them in place? Were they flushed regularly? What were they flushed with? Did they take all those dressings off every time they, at least twice a day, and inspect that catheter insertion site for any problems? When they're flushing those catheters, did they palpate above that catheter to make sure they could feel those fluids actually flushing through that vein? So these are all, and there's lots, lots more questions we could add on to that. And these are all things that we can go and look at. So if this was my clinical data and this was me dealing with these patients, you can see that I'm very lazy. I do little tiny clips and I only use surgical spirits, I don't use any chlorhexidine, and maybe I have more problems associated with my catheters. I know there have been veterinary nurses that have started to do this in studies, looking at the type of um, material that we use, the type of tape that we're using for, for keeping these catheters in place. But all of this is looking at how we can avoid complications in these patients, you know, for, and particularly for us working in emergency medicine. I'm sure we'll have all spent time with patients where we've gone through all four of those legs because maybe... They've not been prepped adequately or maybe because people have really poor technique for dressing those catheters in place and for taping them in place and we end up with these cats with big fat feet or we've got catheters that fall out so it's about looking that we can adapt as we said from that we may end up you know 
creating a set of guidelines so we are really quite rigid about how we want to take those catheters in, so the type of um, adhesive tape we're going to use to maintain them in place. So, you know, 20 years ago, most of us probably used zinc oxide tape, which would basically wax that patient's leg and would cause a lot of pain and a lot of inflammation, and we wouldn't be able to use that leg for catheter placement for a long period of time afterwards. We could apply similar things to Robert Jones bandages. People will have conversations about whether you should use cotton wool for Robert Jones bandages, whether you should use soft band, whether you should put stirrups on, whether you shouldn't put stirrups on. And I don't know, people may know differently, I don't know of anyone that's gone away and actually done a study of what works and what doesn't work in Robert Jones bandages. There may be something out there. But these are all things that we'll be doing on a daily basis that can make a difference to our patients. So from that, we're going to look at creating specific techniques that everyone will have to agree to. Sometimes it can be quite difficult getting everyone on board, particularly normally vets, if they've got certain way things, a certain way of doing it. But, you know, there are certain things we want to avoid. We want to avoid these catheter-associated infections and these problems because we've got to explain that to owners when they go home. They're going to have knock-on problems for our patients. They're going to have knock-on problems for us as veterinary staff and within our practice as well. Um, significant event reporting, again, I think for the majority of nurses is something, again, that is a subject that doesn't crop up, particularly in general practice and, again, particularly in small practices. So this is looking at um, an event that thought by anyone on the team is significant in the care of patients or the conduct of that practice. So this is where we, um, we look at what happened. So when we have a problem with our patients, it's looking at what happened, why that came about, why it wasn't detected, why things were done in a certain way. And it's really about learning lessons and, again, using those lessons that we learned to incorporate those into our protocols and look at making changes to avoid these happening. So um, vets now do significant um, event reporting uh, as an organisation, and it's really useful. I'm very much a fan of being completely open and talking about stupid mistakes that I've made because it stops people making those mistakes. I know that I've learnt best from things that I've done wrong probably more than things that I've done right. And it's so useful to give, put that information out there and be really, really open and honest about it because I think nurses in particular you know, really don't want to come forward and say, do you know what, I did this and I can't believe I've done it and I made this terrible mistake. So it's about them feeling that they can go forward and say, look, this is what happened. I did this and learn from it and make that whole practice learn from it. Make the nursing team and make the vets as well learn from it. And it can be something just as simple as, you know, making sure those fluids are patent. I know that we've had patients where We've not been able to control their analgesia in a surgical patient, and actually it's because their IV line's blown and someone's not realised because they're covered up with drapes and they've been doing lots of other things to try and improve analgesia in that patient, and actually what they needed to do was go right, right back to basics. We talked about clinical articles, and I said what's really important with nurses is that they have some education about how they want to read and appraise and critique those clinical articles. And it is very difficult. I know when I started to look at them, I thought they were really dry and really hard work and probably spent a number of, ta- a number of years not actually looking at them because I didn't really know what I was looking at. I think what is really useful to do is looking at introducing journal clubs within practices And that's a good way of getting that information out there. So doing this on maybe a monthly basis where you look at something that's come out, something that is related to veterinary nursing, something that's, you know, of interest to those nurses, maybe something that's a little bit more fun. So, for example, you know, 
Nurses probably in a lot of practices are still using heparin isaline for flushing catheters, and there is evidence out there that it's probably actually the mechanism as well as flushing rather than what we flush those catheter is that makes them remain patent. But still, getting that evidence out there is quite difficult for the majority of nurses. So looking at topics like this and articles like this that are relevant for those nurses, I think, makes it much easier and much more useful for those nurses, and they're more likely to, to take that information away and do something about it. So in summary, I've said this all the way through, it's about focusing on what's relevant. There's no point as nurses picking something that's not going to be reflected in the way they work, that's not going to be useful to what they do as a nurse. Looking at developing clinical auditing within practices to provide an evidence base, and we're going to use that to base future decisions. And actually, we can create lots of you know, available evidence and data if we've got more general practices doing this. Looking at improving standards of care, all nurses want to do the best of their patients. It's a cliche, but we are our patients' advocates, and we want to do best for them and know that we're making a difference. As we said, it's, it's teaching nurses that clinical papers aren't frightening and getting someone within that practice to help talk them through them, use that, get that useful information, and know how to critique them.